Well, hello, welcome. Uh, welcome to Mark chapter 2. We're all the way in chapter 2. That's what we'll be looking at uh, this morning. We'll uh, begin to see some things develop in the life of Jesus as we spend time uh, watching how Mark uh, develops the story of the gospel. And so we're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You know, we have just one scene here this morning. We have in the past looked at two or three scenes together, but here's just one. But what we're going to see in Mark chapter 2 is we're going to see Mark stitch together five separate scenes from the life of Jesus that all have something in common. What they all have in common is that there is conflict in each of these five scenes. Conflict about the authority of Jesus. Is he really who he says he is? And so this morning we're going to look at that first scene, but uh, I feel like I need to remind you that thus far in Mark's gospel, we have not seen any human opposition to Jesus. Isn't that strange? We have seen opposition to Jesus so far. We've seen uh, opposition that has come from demons. We have seen Jesus in the wilderness being tested by Satan, of course, very briefly in Mark's gospel. And verse 23 of chapter 1, on the Sabbath day in Capernaum, the city of our passage this morning, an unclean spirit is silenced by Jesus. And then at Peter's house in Capernaum, Jesus, in verse 34 of chapter 1, would not permit the demons to speak. And then now beginning here, Mark seems to have deliberately placed together five scenes in which the conflict against Jesus, those that oppose Jesus, are actually human agents. If you go to the very end of this uh, section in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that's where the, the fifth and final scene of conflict is in this section. And Mark chapter 3, the very beginning, you actually see where this conflict leads. The religious leaders begin to plot how it is that they can destroy Jesus. And so in these five scenes, I think they grow in intensity. But we're looking at the first one uh, this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And little theologians, I'd like for you to draw something for me, but I have to admit that I'm a little bit nervous about this. Every, every image that I wanted you to draw for me seemed to have an element of fear about it. And this one is, but I, I, think, that, uh, I think you'll understand why it's important. I'd like for you to draw a picture of uh, safely uh, removing the roof of a house so that you can get inside that house. And the reason this is not a pleasant scene is because uh, tornadoes have just come through uh, our city. And so I don't want to scare you, and I don't want to bring uh, images uh, to your mind that are frightening. But in this passage, there are four men who dig a hole in the roof of a building. And they do so in such a way that they preserve the safety of those inside, because their goal is to lower their friend through that roof into this room in front of Jesus. They want to see and be near Jesus. And so they can't just tear the roof apart. They have to do so in such a way that everyone is safe and that they can be in front of Jesus. That's happening in this scene, and I'd like for you to draw that for me. The passage, again, is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Would you please join me in prayer? Holy Father, you tell us that you're word will not return to you empty or void, that it indeed will bring about that which you have uh, in mind for it to accomplish. 
We pray that you would uh, do that in our very presence here uh, this morning. Cause your word to bring about that which you wish for it to accomplish. Do that deep in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage is Mark chapter 2, beginning at 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of our Lord. Well, you see right there at the beginning of the passage, there's some kind of time gap. Jesus returns to Capernaum, Mark says, after some days. We don't know exactly where he went. Mark doesn't give us every detail that we would like. This is one of those scenes, by the way, in which we would like a lot more information than Mark delivers to us. But if we go backwards a bit, we do know that in verse 35 of chapter 1, Jesus was in a desolate place, and then in verse 38, he says to his disciples, let us go on to the next towns. And then in verse 39, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples went throughout all Galilee. But we still don't know how long he was away. And now it appears he's returned to Capernaum where Peter and Andrew live, and most likely James and John live as well. Remember, uh, even still, that only four disciples of Jesus have been named. And then look at verse 1. It was reported that he was, you see what it says there, home. So Capernaum has become, as Matthew puts it, his own city, Matthew 9, verse 1. Rather than Nazareth, Jesus, he lives in Capernaum. This is his headquarters then for his Galilean ministry. It may very well be that he's living in the home of Peter and his wife. We just, we just don't know. But one thing that's very obvious for this passage, if we remember what we looked at last week, is that they're already even here in verse 1, is brewing some kind of conflict. Verse 2 says, Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Well, how did that happen? All of these people are here. 
And given Mark's arrangement of this scene following the scene of last week, I wonder if we can, based on that arrangement, uh, blame this problem of verses 1 and 2 on the leper that Jesus healed in chapter 1, verse 45. I know this sounds a bit mean. But instead of being quiet like Jesus commanded the leper, what does he do instead? He began to talk freely and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. That's in verse 45. And so it seems as though the disobedience of that particular man has caused some problems because he won't keep quiet. Well, the fame of Jesus, it spreads. But notice this, even though that's the case, that this house is absolutely full of people. Even so, that's the case. Jesus doesn't shirk what he was sent to do. He continues to pursue his divine authority to do the will of God, to serve and to save God's people. And Jesus will not be flustered by our disobedience. I think that's here at the very beginning of this scene. And so here we are, this first conflict about the authority of Jesus. And the conflict about his authority here has to do with a particular kind of authority that some believe Jesus doesn't have. And that's the authority to forgive sins. And what Mark is making clear, even as he begins these uh, five scenes of human conflict against Jesus, Mark wants us to understand that the authority of Jesus is an authority to forgive sin and to forgive all of the debilitating effects of that sin. Jesus has that authority to forgive sin and to remove all of its debilitating effects. I think that uh, reference to debilitating effects has, is shown to us in the fact that this man uh, who is uh, forgiven is a man who is uh, uh, paralytic. We want to begin by looking at uh, just five short verses that show us what, what exactly it looks like to see faith in action. Faith in action. Have you wondered what that looks like? It looks uh, a number of different ways, but Mark is very clear that it looks uh, very bold indeed right here in these first five verses. You see, Jesus has returned to Capernaum after traveling. Word has gotten around. And the precise location is hard to tell. Mark says that this is Jesus' own house. But as I suggested earlier, it could be uh, the house of Peter uh, and his wife, and Jesus is staying in this house. You know, there isn't any archaeological evidence that would uh, suggest that we know exactly uh, in which house Jesus lived. But there is strong uh, archaeological evidence that suggests that uh, in the city of Capernaum, uh, historians actually know the home of Peter. Did you know that was the case? There's a house that for a variety of reasons, uh, archaeologists suspect is Peter's house. It's very near to the synagogue. And it's actually a complex of structures that are built around an inner courtyard off of the street. And so you would leave the street and you would go immediately into a courtyard. And inside the courtyard would be uh, millstones for grain and presses for oil. And around the edge of the courtyard, at least of the uh, plans of this particular uh, house, which they suspect is the house of Peter, around the edges of that courtyard off of the street are a variety of staircases, and these staircases uh, lead to uh, the dwellings that are uh, on the rooftop. The walls are heavy, thick, rock. Some of the walls are plastered. 
And then the roofs, archaeologists suspect, are tightly bound thatch and wood together, perhaps cross beams with the thatch laid across the beams themselves. And then we can imagine, uh, if this is indeed the house, crowds that are uh, pouring off of the street, and they're pouring actually into that courtyard. There's a variety of places the crowds could go, but they want to go where Jesus is, and Jesus is in uh, one part of the ground floor. And so the crowds fill the courtyard, but the crowds, Mark says, fills even the doorway into the place where Jesus is. And for one person to snake their way through uh, the crowds in the street, in the courtyard, uh, and the doorway in the room, it would be, well, nearly impossible. But for four people uh, with uh, a bed between them to snake their way through those crowds, well, that would be, that would be almost impossible. Well, here we have this man who is carried by uh, four individuals. We know nothing about this paralytic other than the severity of his illness. Mark mentions that he's paralytic three times in this passage. I don't know if you caught that. And so certainly his uh, legs do not function, but it may be his torso as well. There's reason to suggest, given the word that Mark uses, that this man uh, may have movement in his arms. And we don't know how long he's been like this. And we certainly don't know his age. When Jesus calls him son, he uses the word for child. But I don't think that's a reference to his age. I think more the affection that Jesus has for him. Uh, So we don't know how long he has been like this. But we also don't know where uh, he lives. I suspect it's unlikely that he lives in this very complex of homes. Most likely he lives in some other part of Capernaum. We also don't know if he's suffering pain, if he actually uh, feels pain. There are times, even in the New Testament, where the word paralytic uh, is associated with suffering, physical suffering. And then, as you can see, almost in a comic fashion, his transportation is very makeshift. We're not told that he's on a special platform that's used for travel, and we're told that he's, well, he's in a bed. What do you suppose that means? I suppose it means it's in, is that he's in his own bed. So the man likely does not get out very often, But he is today, and he's carried in the very bed in which he would sleep. And these friends, these perhaps family members, boy, they are incredibly devoted to him, aren't they? Apparently, these men would do almost anything for him. Well, what is it that they have done? Well, what they've done is they've made an absolute and total spectacle of themselves, shamelessly. It's outrageous behavior these four men uh, commit. They cannot make their way with their friend through this crowd. And they can't do this, apparently, uh, not even by losing his bed. Surely, there had to have been uh, one of those four men thinking, what if we ditch the bed and we just kind of rope him between a couple of us? The crowd was so intense, they didn't think even that was a possibility. But they do see a staircase. And they extrapolate from the from the crowds, where exactly they would have to drop in to be in front of Jesus. And so they push through the crowd, and they ignore the problem associated with damaging another person's property, and they begin to ascend the staircase. Almost from the very, very beginning, this is extremely odd behavior. 
And they make their way to a staircase and they uh, climb the staircase. Perhaps uh, they're thinking what they might do at the top is if there isn't already a hole, there's not going to be one, then they'll dig through the ceiling and they'll promise to come back and make repairs or they'll offer uh, compensation for the damage that they've done. When you think about it, it would be offensive if someone did that to us today, but why are, you, why are we unique? It would have been offensive then as well. Damaging another person's property, damaging a neighbor's property. Well, they climb the stairs, and then apparently they get on their knees. They would have to get on their knees uh, on the roof, and they begin to uh, dig a hole. Imagine what this would look like from below. I mean, they would uh, scatter dust and and debris all over the house. It would be impossible for them to simply uh, remove the roof without bits and pieces dropping. The noise, the dust, the dirt, the falling lumber... Well, that ought to just send people on the inside scrambling. And, and then to even think that it would be possible to uh, lower their friend on this bed. We're not told if the friend is strapped to the bed. Uh, we're not told if uh, two of the men go downstairs so that they can receive the pallet from the two men on the roof. We're not told the role that the inhabitants in the, in the house would play. Oh, look. A bed is coming through the ceiling. They seem committed. Should we sit back? Should we run? Should we help? We don't have any of those details. And lowering that bed right in front of Jesus, it's really obnoxious behavior. It's absolute disregard for what people might think. And in many ways, because it's an infraction of a person's property and it's such outlandish behavior, it's a disregard even for their own reputations. But they don't seem to be thinking about any of that. You know, we tend to think about faith moving us forward in smooth and mystical ways. And we perhaps don't use that phrase, smooth and mystical. But we tend to follow uh, God's will in our lives by tracing out gently sloped paths, and if the gates are not already open, we wait patiently for those uh, gates to, well, swing rather smoothly, if not all by themselves. (laughs) This is what I mean by uh, living a life of faith that is smooth and mystical. And actually, the Bible does give us pictures of movement in this way. Uh, the very picture of waiting for doors to open. Don't we use that phrase often? We certainly know what it means if you've been a Christian for more than a month. Doors opening is a sign that God wants us to go through that door. This is following the will of God, and uh, this is what active faith looks like. We know that vocabulary actually comes from the Apostle Paul. Numerous times, in fact, Paul uses uh, the reference of a door to describe uh, moving forward in a faith that is active. But Paul, of all people, was also a man who took big chances as a Christian. Uh, Indeed, he would wait for doors to open, but at the same time, he would enter into situations that would completely and utterly terrify us. Jesus will be greeted with those uh, waiting for him, 
Indeed, the doors do sometimes fling open. Circumstances in our lives uh, uh, end up being pushed to the side such that we see a gently sloped path before us. And Jesus will be uh, worshipped and we will show devotion to him as we walk in faith. But sometimes chasing down Jesus, as it were, requires more than a gently sloped path with all gates opening before us without a squeak. Sometimes active faith requires uh, pushing aside those obstacles that we might see him, that we might speak to him, that we might be close to him. That's what these four men are doing. And what we need is we need to have both kinds of active faith, the kind of faith that waits for the doors to open, but as a professor of mine said, also the kind of faith that removes the hinges from those very doors. That's what we see these four men doing. And they're not doing that, mind you, for the sake of their friend or their relative, whoever it is who is on that pallet, whether he is strapped in or not. They're not doing it for him. They're doing it for Jesus. They're doing it that they might see him and speak to him and be close to him. Oh my, how that zeal rather dissolves in our Christian life, doesn't it? We ought to think about these four men in another way, not just the uh, activeness of their desire to uh, see Jesus, to uh, be in his presence. What do you think about the uh, doctrine of these men? Have I just taken an uh, otherwise lovely, beautiful, picturesque scene and just ruined it? What do you think they believe? I mean, an internal debate is going to open up, as we'll see next. This internal debate that these individuals have about uh, these claims of Jesus to be God. But do you think that these four men carrying their friend, do you think that they have already resolved all of those issues about who God is? Do you think they have a pretty solid doctrine of Christology? Do you think they understand the Trinitarian economy between the Father and the Son? Do you think they understand the nature of sin in general, the nature of their own sin, that sin is not merely an action, but sin is a pollution of nature, a pollution of that which is uh, created good? Do they understand substitutionary atonement, the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf? And do they understand the relationship between saving faith and sanctifying faith? Now, not, now I've just gone too far, right? You, you, you sense me. I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. Uh, very likely, they don't understand all of those uh, intricacies at all. Many bits and pieces, to be sure. But even still, it's not these things that actually motivate them. It's not their friend that motivates them. And it's not even uh, their uh, pursuit of uh, doctrinal perspicuity, doctrinal clarity. Sometimes I can't stop being tongue-in-cheek. No, they're pursuing Jesus. Remember, in Mark, the gospel is a person, and they're pursuing that person. They have a friend, and they want to express devotion towards their friend, but they want to be with Jesus. And they have an understanding of who Jesus is. They have an understanding of the Old Testament and the expectation for the Messiah, but they're not doing this for doctrinal reasons. They're doing this because they want to see Jesus. Now, opposition arises from this beautiful scene in verses 6 through 8. 
But we know this. We, we know what's about to happen. You know, some people, they oppose Jesus and the gospel angrily and thoughtlessly. They write him off and usually vociferously speaking. They're, they're angry and they want to stop Jesus. Sometimes people oppose Jesus that way. But sometimes people are torn in their opposition about Jesus. They're not very angry, but they're not sure they believe. In fact, they're rather sure they don't believe, but they're not sure why they don't believe. They're pondering. Now, John Stott said this is, uh, the reason for this is because God in his uh, uh, wonderment of creation has placed his thumbprint upon our very nature. Uh, John Stott says that he would encourage himself in, pre- in preaching the gospel to someone, uh, even if he uh, thought they might be uh, very actively uh, angry and opposed to the gospel, that John Stott found comfort that he believed that well, their conscience was on his side because of the way they have been made by his God. His fingerprint is there. And these individuals in verses 6 and 8 who actually are opposing Jesus, they seem to be that latter kind of people, the kind of people who oppose Jesus rather softly, quietly. They're thinking. You know, Mark waits all the way to verse 6 before he tells us that scribes are sitting there. Now think about that. He was talking about the crowds at the very beginning of this scene, but he waits all the way to verse 6 before he tells us that, oh, I forgot there were some scribes there. But imagine this. These scribes are there. Do you get what I'm saying? Imagine this. These scribes are there. They're present. And not only are they present, they seem to have arrived early enough to get good seats. And they've been listening to Jesus. And what is it that Jesus has been doing? Well, Mark does tell us that, doesn't he, in verse 2. Jesus is preaching the word. And these scribes, they're they're word people, these scribes. They're the kind of people that maul over words. They're the kind of people that copy words. They're the kind of people that make sure not only is the copying done well, matches the original, but also is the interpretation of the copying done well. These are the kind of people who uh, are teachers. These are the kind of people who are uh, consultants. They're word people. And these are the kind of people who are there, Mark doesn't tell us until verse 6, and they're listening to Jesus as scribes listen. Would you be offended if I said that uh, there are things about your life, not merely your temperament, but your vocation as well, that tell me a thing or two about how you listen to Jesus? It's not perfect. But I've come from uh, Anchorage, Alaska, where uh, there are so many engineers. They're just everywhere. And I feel as though I have a pretty decent idea about how engineers tend to listen about Jesus. I know that sounds a bit arrogant, but you do this sort of thing as well. Uh, An accountant is going to listen to a passage from Scripture perhaps differently than an engineer and differently than a business owner or differently than a teacher. Again, it's not perfect science, is it? But scribes listening to what Mark says in verse 2 is the word. This is something they're good at. And what have they been doing thus far? Sitting, listening, silently. A powerful image. They're there. 
And, and not only this, uh, let's, let's all of us ask the question, well, when is it that the scribes do actually speak? Look in the passage. When is it that they speak? The debate that they have in verse 6 is a debate in which Mark is very clear, is a debate in which they're questioning in their hearts. They're debating in their hearts. And not only this, but notice that it's only some of the scribes that are doing this in verse 6. Do you see the word some? I mean, I don't want to make too much of it, but there's a lot of scribes there, and some of those scribes have an internal debate. It's not being spoken. And this is not actually visible to others. In fact, Mark wants us to so understand that that he tells us that Jesus is uh, understanding what they're saying because he has this unique ability to understand what they're saying. He peers into their hearts. They're scribes. They're word people. They're sitting there and they're listening. And they're saying nothing. Hmm. I'd love to know what they're thinking. I'd love to know what happens to them after this scene. And I'm enticed by the fact that there's some, only some of them are debating. Well, uh, we do want to talk about how it is that Jesus is able to perceive in his spirit uh, what it is that they're thinking, but I want us to hold on that for just, uh, just a moment. I want to talk about that later. But Jesus does know exactly what these scribes are debating in their hearts, and they're, just, they're debating this, verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? And you see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is claiming to forgive sins of an individual man, the man who's been uh, lowered uh, into uh, his presence. He says to him in verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, to forgive sins that people commit against us, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's not easy. It's not pleasant. But everyone in this room knows what it's like to forgive sins that have been committed against them. It actually makes sense even though it's hard. But Jesus has never met this man. At least we're not told that he's ever met this man. And, and, and when did this paralytic man sin against Jesus? Mark doesn't uh, tell us. So uh, how is it then that Jesus can be the one who forgives him? Uh, Jesus uh, does believe that this paralytic man has sinned. He says, your sins are forgiven. But this man never sinned against Jesus, did he? They've never met. But if Jesus is forgiving sins, and the particular sins have not been committed against him, he's claiming to have the power over every sin that this man has ever committed. In fact, he's claiming to have the power over all sin. And really what Jesus is saying is that sin itself, by its very existence, is against him. That's a remarkable thing. And the scribes, uh, they understand this. Uh, they, they know exactly what Jesus is, uh, is saying about himself. They understood that this is something that is true for God alone, that every sin is a sin personally against one individual. Well, that individual is God and God alone, which is why all sin needs forgiveness from God alone, which is why the entire sacrificial system exists which is why Isaiah 40 is so precious. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And again in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Well, Jesus is saying that there uh, wasn't something that happened the day before in which this paralytic man managed to offend Jesus and Jesus is, a, is forgiving him publicly. 
Jesus is saying that all sin is against me, and he is the only one that has the power to forgive that sin. And that's why the charge, by the way, is a charge of blasphemy. Keep in mind, the scribes, they never say blasphemy, but that is the charge. And it's, at, it's in fact, it's the first charge made against Jesus in Mark's gospel. How about that? This is the very first charge that a human being makes against Jesus in Mark's gospel. And it's also the last charge that's made against Jesus. In Mark 14, verse 64, uh, before the council, the high priest uh, hears Jesus uh, assert that he is the Father, and he tears his own robe saying, uh, have you heard this blasphemy? And the council condemns Jesus. Well, blasphemy is an interesting charge, isn't it? And later when Jesus is preaching in Jerusalem about being one with the Father, he's almost stoned, and a mob says, we are going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. You, being a man, make yourself God. That's the charge. Well, Jesus, he offers proof, doesn't he, in the closing scene or the closing portion of the scene, verses 9 through 12. But Jesus actually doesn't need to prove himself. You know, we see the, the uh, active uh, faith of these uh, five men. Uh, and then we see the conflict that arises right there in the center. And then the proof at the very, very end. But he doesn't need to prove himself. Well, you might say he doesn't need to prove himself because he is who he is. But he doesn't need to prove himself because he already has. What kind of a man is this man? What kind of a man comes close like this to people? He's dived deep into the hearts of these scribes without admonishing them, without judging them, without even rejecting them. That Jesus, he knows their every resistance better than they do. He knows them. We often think, nobody knows me. I'm my own person. Maybe God knows me, but nobody else. But Jesus, he knows them. Everything about them, even this debate in which they are saying to themselves, I cannot believe this, I cannot believe this, I cannot believe this. And in verse 8, Jesus is, is able to perceive in his spirit their doubts and their opposition. This is a remarkable expression I don't want you to forget verse 8. Jesus perceives in his own spirit, in his own manhood, their doubts, their opposition. This feels to me a little bit like Mark 1, verse 41, where Jesus is moved with pity for the leper, even though he himself does not have leprosy and is not unclean. And now he's just watched desperate men lower their friend through a ceiling and then sense the deep-seated doubts of a few scribes. He doesn't reject them. He sees them. And in his spirit, he says, I see you. I know you. Now, you may know what I'm talking about if you've felt this from a dear friend who is also a dear counselor to you. In difficult seasons of life, it has been so wonderful for that friend to come to you and say, I see you. I know you. I understand what you're going through. And Jesus, as fully man, he sympathizes with them, even though he knows everything about them. 
And we could say it in this way in verse 10, Jesus cares that they know him. He cares that they know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus cares that they would know that. However, Jesus also cares for them even in their doubt. Now, that's the compassion of Jesus. That's the willingness of Jesus to uh, tolerate our doubts and our misgivings about him. That's Jesus coming close to us. That's Jesus uh, persuading us. That, in many ways, I think, is the gift of the world, uh, of the church, the gift to the world of the church. As Christian people, we have an opportunity to be with non-believers, to anticipate to a degree their opposition to Jesus because we know how humanity is created that to not believe in Jesus is not very good, and that, they, uh, that we have an uh, opportunity to offer to them to the, the gospel. This really is a gift to the world. However, uh, this, uh, these scribes who doubt, they're still wrong, aren't they? They don't believe he's God and that the forgiveness of sins that he is offering is genuine. And he tells them that they're wrong by doing something Jesus does. He doesn't uh, simply uh, admonish them with his words. He actually does something to show them what they're wrong. But what he does is beautiful. He uses grace to tell them that they're wrong. He uses goodness to tell them that they're wrong. He uses restoration to tell them that they're wrong. And he says in verse 9, which is easier? Literally, which requires uh, no labor at all? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which of these requires no work at all? I mean, both are easy if you don't mean it, right? You can say anything. We often do. Just say anything. And one is easier if it doesn't need to be proven. You can say your sins are forgiven and just go about your day. Everyone will go about their day. No one needs to prove that. Well, if you really mean it, both of these things are going to require some work. The scribes know that to forgive sin is a work. To forgive sin is something that God must do. He must make it happen. That's a work. God has to do something to forgive sin. But they also know that to make a person rise, well, that takes work too. God must do that as well. He must make it happen so that this individual can rise. And Jesus turns to the paralytic in verse 11. And he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, in verse 5, Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And Mark doesn't tell us if he believed that Jesus was who he says he was. Jesus called him his child, almost like an adoption. But we don't know if the paralytic or his four friends uh, believed in Jesus. I suspect they did. But much of the good news is really beyond our imagination. I mean, just think about your own belief as a Christian. I mean, how is it possible that we can believe ev all of the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ? That's why we're told that when we see Jesus face to face, that all of those uh, former things that seem so important to us will fall by the wayside. God's glory will do that to us. But if there's any doubt in the moment for these four men or for this paralytic, it's now completely gone. In verse 12, he rises immediately, picks up his own bed, 
and he leaves in the presence of everyone they might see him leave. And his life, simply by being a life, becomes a very testimony of the authority that Jesus has. <laughs> Some of the scribes, they doubted. And I wish that we could hear if all of the scribes continued in their doubt after verse 12. But what Mark does say is he says that the room turns into a praise service as they glorify God. And there's tons of uncertainties in this passage. Will the paralytic and his friend continue the life of faith? Will they remain uh, courageous, these five individuals? Do the crowds really believe Jesus is God, or do they praise God haphazardly, caught up in the moment? And do any of the scribes come to believe that Jesus is God? Mark and the Holy Spirit, they don't tell us here. But we know from experience as Christian people that the authority of Jesus is an authority to forgive sin, but also all of sin's debilitating effects. But not everyone believe in this room. I want to conclude here. You know, if we took this scene, imagined ourselves there, just taking in everything that's happening, I don't think that we would uh, sense a, a jarring step between the various events. I think all of the events in the scene would actually fit together. Even a man dropping through a ceiling and that man being uh, healed. In fact, everything in this scene, just these 12 short verses, they, they actually present to us this wonderful story, even uh, the story of redemption. Jesus, he returns home from preaching the gospel. He enters Capernaum with the gospel on his lips. He's doing that very thing in this house. He's revealing the gospel of God. How is he doing that? He's doing that with the word. He's unfolding the Old Testament. He's walking his audience through uh, God's uh, story of redemption in the Old Testament. And he's telling them where he is, just as he does in Luke chapter 24. Walking his audience from text to text persuading, proving, illustrating. And he's showing how it is that the time is indeed fulfilled, that the preparation of John the Baptist, of which they would know, has taken place, and that God's kingdom has arrived in the presence of himself. There's rumors all around Jesus because his fame has spread. Everyone in that room would have heard those rumors and stories about him. They would have heard about his preaching ministry. They would have heard that people are saying, this is the one who God with his own voice says is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then people are are all drawn to him, and even Holy Spirits are drawn to him, such such that there is a, a cosmic movement towards Jesus Christ. And his teaching is astonishing. They knew that before they went into the house. And Jesus, he has already appointed disciples. He is building for himself this earthly reign, much like the reign uh, of the uh, disciples, the spiritual reign of the disciples. And Jesus, he is asserting his authority by rebuking evil spirits. They would have heard all of that. And he's traveling from town to down, uh, town to town. In a way, it's a reconquest of the land. He's defeating fever and leprosy and various other diseases. And if he's teaching that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is broken in, there's evidence everywhere of this, all around those who are in the room at this in this afternoon. And the crowds and the scribes aware of all of this, because that's why they're there. And while he's preaching, the rumored events actually break into the sermon that Jesus is preaching. The rumored events are real. Visitors enter from the ceiling and they drop down a man who has profound and desperate need. And a statement from Jesus that he says, 
I am sure, ties to the conclusion of his sermon. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. But everything he's been preaching before the people this very afternoon coincides with that message. He is telling them that they need a rescuer who is able to deal with sin. Nothing short of the coming of the kingdom of God is required for their salvation. And if the kingdom of God is here and this is his only beloved son, the Messiah, then forgiveness of sins is exactly what we should expect. And that's exactly what he says to the man who's dropped in from the ceiling. And everyone in that room is getting a foretaste of something good a foretaste that paralysis is not God's very good for humanity. It's an invader. It's unwelcome. And uh, those who come to Jesus Christ acknowledging that he has the authority to forgive sins are given a foretaste of that which is theirs. Sickness and sin and death and tears will be no more. Everything that is offered to us for the restoration of who we are as people is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And for our sins to be forgiven is to be reconciled to God and to be made whole. Just think about this afternoon in this home. Everything. We think a lot about the timing of our liturgy. But the timing of this afternoon when Jesus is preaching and dust fills the room because a hole is opened up in the ceiling and a man is dropped before him and the words to that man and the words to the doubters and the words of praise as the service is over. Everything fits together. The authority of Jesus is an authority to forgive sin and to, and to remove all of the debilitating effects of sin. The kingdom of God is here. And this message of the gospel is a message that the church by God's grace, has an opportunity to live out in her life and to express with her words. Let's pray together. Father, this is your gospel. You are the only one who can save. We pray that you would forgive us for those times in which we have made light of your saving purposes in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would forgive us for the times in which we have been uh, quiet, stoically so, not telling others about this gospel of grace, the inbreaking of your kingdom. Lead us and direct us for your name's sake to the praise of Jesus our Savior. Amen.